You know, uh, I, in 2007, I arrived on the summit of Everest. I, for the first 10 or 15 minutes, I was all alone. As far as the naked eye could see into Tibet and China, I could see. As far as the naked eye could see into um, Nepal and India, I could see as well. And someone said, you know, wasn't that uh, emotional for you? And I go, if you could have taken away my glasses, you would have seen frozen teardrops. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 166, Mountaineering in the Seven Summits with Al Hancock. Welcome back to another Adventure Sports Podcast episode. This is your host, Travis. I've got a good one for you guys today. I've got Al Hancock on the line. I ran across Al uh, when I was talking to Mike Fenner. And Mike, if you remember, uh, did uh, the he wrote the Crossing Denali book, and we did a, an interview, an episode with him a little bit while back. And Al was one of uh, one of Mike's teammates, and I got to talking to Al, and Al has some amazing things going on. Um, he has completed the seven summits, which is the seven highest mountains or the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. And he's currently working on the Big 14, which is the 14 highest peaks in the world. And, you know, this guy's got some amazing stories. I've been reading through his uh, his journals on his site, and I encourage you guys to uh, go visit alhancock.com and, and check it out while you're listening uh, to this show because Al's got some amazing pictures and amazing stories from his adventures, and he's here to tell us about them today. So, Al, welcome to the show. Well, Travis, thank you so much, uh, and again, uh, hello to all your listeners out there. Yeah, well, let's dig into this. Um, like I said, I've only scratched the surface uh, about what you've been doing, and uh, your story is amazing. And I'm just, uh, um, I'm completely into reading the journals. I wish I had had more time to read more of them going into this, but I guess it'll uh, it'll let me in on some of your stuff, uh, you know, <laughs> just like the listeners instead of uh, instead of knowing your full story before going into it. So let's dig into your background a little bit first. Um, you grew up in. In Newfoundland and then found yourself in Alberta, Canada. So what what is it that brought you to Alberta and uh, and what is it you're doing in Alberta at this point? Uh, you know, I came to Alberta when I was 18 years old, seeking out uh, opportunities within the oil field. Uh, at the age of 18, I got a job with one of the oil companies. Um, you know, became a German millwright by the age of 21 and worked in that field uh, pretty well most of my career. Uh, I used to, you know, fast forward a little bit. Uh, I live here in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, you know, getting into mountaineering, it all started by trying something new for me. I used to be involved in another sport, bodybuilding, done really, really well at that sport and competed and won many, many awards. And then I walked away from that sport and I want to try something new, something different. And so I had basically taken a basic alpine course down in uh, Canmore here in Alberta. And, you know, I remember sitting in class and there was a lot of people in there, when I say a lot, say seven or eight, uh, and they were saying, you know, one day I want to climb Denali 
Mount McKinley being the same mountain, of course. One day I want to climb Mount Robinson, etc. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, I'm only here for a weekend just to try something new. And that's all it was for me, to get out there, to meet new people, to uh, take on new experiences. And I was uh, did the classroom part. Then I was on the AE call, Mount Athabasca. And I was really, really sick with the flu. And so I unclipped with a guide and went back down to the campground. And I was sitting on a park bench with a two-way radio on, and the cloud ceiling cover was low. And I can remember looking up because I heard people, uh, the radio was crackling, and people were saying, you know, we're on top, we're on top, we're on the summit. And I remember looking up in that direction and thinking, boy, I'm coming back here, and I'm going up there. And, uh, you know, fast forward to where I'm at today, you know, I make my living now as a professional uh, keynote speaker, certainly a full-time professional mountaineer. Uh, but it all started by trying something new. And a lot of times when I'm in my Q&A sessions, I'll ask the audience, you know, have you ever wanted to try something, but the person you're going to do it with backed out? Most people say yes. And then I say, have you ever wanted to try something new, but you just didn't want to go by yourself? Again, most people say yes. And I go, what a missed opportunity. The worst thing could have happened, hopefully, you would have met really cool and interesting people. And then I, I segue and say, you know, let me tell you my story. And this all started by trying something new. I didn't uh, reach my objective. But, you know, in anything we do in life, be it uh, professionally, be it personally, we always got to, you know, have the courage to fall down, but the strength to get back up again. And then, you know, rather than turn our backs on our challenges, if we don't meet our objective, you know, step back and ask ourselves, what have I learned? What can I do differently again? And then step forward and re-engage. And I continue to do that and take in courses upon courses over the many, many years. And again, like you had mentioned earlier, um, in 2007, I became, no, sorry, 2008, became the 13th Canadian, the 202nd person in the world at that time to have stood on the highest mountain on every continent. But it all started by trying something new. And now today, we'll fast forward, you know, I've been at this game now about 17 years, um, stood on Everest twice, uh, Shishapangba, first Canadian to ever stand on uh, the summit of Makalu, uh, three attempts before I got to the summit of K2, and the list goes on. But what I'm getting at, it's all started by trying something new, stepping outside the comfort zone. So I encourage anybody, if there's anything out there that you want to do, no matter who he or she is, you know, get the right training. But uh, go and chase and follow your dreams. Uh, everything has a beginning, I call it, and everything has an end. And in between, it's up for us to fill it up, and that's called life. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I think you're right. I think we, we often find ourselves leaning on a partner to do something scary. And often that person you know, can or does back out. And a lot of people do miss out on great opportunities by not forging ahead on their own. I mean, that's, uh, that's important to, to get out there and, and do it yourself and not worry about having somebody else as a crutch. Yeah, absolutely right. And I'll always say, you know, um, I'll never be the richest guy in a cemetery but who wants to be? Uh, so often people will say, uh, you know, I, I've always wanted to do this, but I can never see myself affording it. And I'll go, well, actually, if you really want it bad enough, you can. You know, I rent an apartment. I don't have a big house. You know, my vehicle is, the warranty is long gone off it. Um, so I make sacrifices. Life is about choice. But again, you know, we live in such a materialistic world. We need to continually strip away the materialistic world and really get out there and embrace the world as it is and enjoy life 
uh, to the fullest. Right, right, absolutely. So was Denali your first major climb or what, what led up to that? Uh, you know, it seems such a long time ago, and who would have guessed that I'd be sitting here talking to you today uh, about Denali and everything else. You know, I was doing a tremendous amount of ice climbing and alpine stuff here in the Canadian Rockies. I was fortunate enough to get involved with a gentleman, meet him, became great friends, uh, Dave Brumman out of Great Falls, Montana, in advanced ice climbing class. We continued to go out and push the limits and hone our skills. And many years ago, uh, he was saying to me, you know, Al, one day I had already, he, I should say he'd done this. He had did a full traverse off Denelli. But he was talking to me about it, and he really started baiting my uh, appetite of uh, the spirit of adventure to go and try this. And I went and uh, to Alaska, and again, I met Mike Fernie, and we became a great friends and still communicate to this day. We were tent mates. But I remember after the fact uh, of Danelli being in the Ghost Valley here with uh, Dave and another gentleman, and they were saying to me, you know, Al, do you think you'll ever do any more big mountains? And my answer from the hip was, no, been there, done that. That's enough for me. <laughs> and look where we are today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're well beyond uh, that at this point. You know, it's like sometimes it's like pinch me. Uh, am, am I dreaming all this? Of course, life is but a dream, but I am so grateful. And I really want to quickly put in there, um, I've had a lot of success over the years, but I've never, ever had success by myself. It takes a tremendous amount of people who believe in what I do, um, sponsors, uh you know, teammates. And so everybody is a link in that chain. And I'm just so grateful and humbled uh, to be sharing some stories with you and your listeners today. But again, it's on behalf of so many people who believe in what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, with that said, you know, I, the one thing that I'm always uh, amazed at is, first of all, for you as an individual to be up in, in this environment and this altitude, and you, you have to be fit, you have to be prepared, you have to be trained and practiced, and you have to be mentally fit. So you're going through a lot of the stuff that you're, you're going through, um, even on a good day, and it's got to be mentally taxing. But then when, you know, the, the proverbial, you know, poo hits the fan, things go south, you have to be able to deal with your own situation personally, but then you run into a situation where, you know, somebody else needs a hand at the same time. So now you got to deal with your situation and help them out because it's, you know, how do you make the decision to just to leave somebody and, uh, you know, and save yourself. And so I read these, these reports, these journals about helping somebody else out and then, you know, trying to get them down and save their life. And then I, I think onto the the Sherpas themselves, and that's what they're they're up there doing. And these guys are always able to to step in and and find this somehow superhuman strength to to assist you guys in the in the troubles that you're going through, as if it's not already hard enough for you. And it's just I'm always amazed at at, at these guys and their ability to to go up there and do this for you guys. You know, we couldn't, again, going back to success, uh, be it uh, the Sherpas out of Nepal, which I've uh, developed a strong relationship and friendship with over the years, and certainly when I'm in Pakistan as well, or we'll say in Tibet, um, you know, they're part of the team. And uh, certainly safety has to be a core value. Um, I owe it not just to myself. I owe it to every team member. I owe it to their family to do the right things right all the time. Uh, so when we're up there, yeah, things go from a beautiful sunny day 
uh, in a blink of an eye to hanging on for your life, uh, be it on Annapurna last year, the incident happened with a tent getting buried in Camp 4 and having to cut ourselves out with a knife. And then after that, uh, myself and, and two Sherpas were late into the night rescuing a Spaniard who eventually loses uh, top of his all of his fingers through frostbite. But those are pretty scary times. And when you're up there involved in a rescue and it's pitch dark outside and all of a sudden you hear an avalanche and you just dig your feet in and you try to get as small as you can and then you get hit with the percussion, uh, those things are pretty scary. But you, uh, it's all those years of uh, honing those skills that you just react to the situation at a time. But again, back to the Sherpas, uh, we couldn't do what we do without them and they are certainly a viable part of any expedition. And again, before I have credit, I give the credit to those. Yeah, no, I get that. So let's dig into that Annapurna story. Um, I just recently read it and I was just, I couldn't stop reading. It was such an amazing story uh, about the, you know, being up on Annapurna, being buried in the avalanche and then subsequently being hit by the, uh, by the earthquake that year. So can you, uh, can you let our listeners in on that story about how it was uh, starting with being up on the mountain when that first avalanche hit? Um, you know, again, um, I'll always say he or she who's willing to bow down to the art of suffering the most has the best opportunity for success. Um, here's a little snapshot, for example, that we just talked about on Annapurna. Uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning, we left uh, Camp 4, our high camp, to make an assumption attempt. Um, you know, sometimes you can get a little delusional and think that the summit is just there where it's probably five, six hours away. It's about making those right decisions. Deep down in the valley, uh, we could see a storm coming and coming fast. Decisions were made that today the summit will not be ours. Uh, so we eventually get down um, to the Camp 4. We're in our tent. Uh, we're all exhausted and I'm sleeping, and all of a sudden I hear this noise, and it was a knee-jerk reaction. As I heard it, I sat up my sleeping bag, and uh, in a blink of an eye, uh, my face was pushed into the fabric. Everything went dark, and we got hit by an avalanche. And, you know, the crampons and ice axes, obviously we're outside the tent, covered in over six feet of snow. So luckily that it happened still in daylight. But we had to cut ourselves out of the tent and then get out there and start digging by hand, looking for our crampons and our ice axes. Imagine if that was in the nighttime. It would have been a different scenario for sure. Once that uh, we all got ourselves together, um, the Sherpas got the rest of the team members and start uh, moving down to Camp 3. Myself and one Sherpa uh, got involved in a rescue with a Spaniard that we just mentioned. Um, it wasn't a good place to be. Uh, I thought that all of us were going to die that night uh, because we're trying to save this gentleman, and he was unresponsive for the most part, uh, but he is alive today. But I all remember as we're coming down, and deep down uh, below, I could see another light, and another Sherpa had stayed to wait for us, and I had called for uh, more assistance from Camp 3, but nobody could make it up at that time. And so we spent many, many hours uh, roping up and... Uh, Getting this gentleman down, he's alive today, uh, but it was pretty scary, pretty intense moments. But again, you know, that's the business we're in. So it can never be to the summit at all costs. Um, it's uh, making those right decisions. Getting to the summit, that's the goal and the objective. Certainly, uh, everything in between is the journey. And you and I talking here today, well, that's my success. <laughs> no doubt. 
Well, one of the things I was relaying to my son while I was reading that that uh, account of Annapurna and helping the the Spanish climber was that the the mental fatigue and the overcoming the uh, the mental challenges up on the mountain must be insanely uh, difficult. You know, so this guy had essentially given up, from what I understood, and you guys had to basically coax him off the mountain and get him getting back, uh, getting back down. How did you do that? How did you convince him to get moving again? Uh, you know, you can't get you like to, but you can't get physically anybody on the mountain. It just kind of goes south. Uh, this gentleman basically he had given up. He sat down uh, into the snow and he was not uh, going to move. And we had to put him on. Um, you know, a high rate of oxygen and really uh, start dragging him to some degree. And he continued not to uh, want to cooperate. And of course, he would have died there. There's no doubt in my mind today, if we didn't do what we did, and when I say we, me, myself and the two Sherpas, that gentleman would be dead today. Uh, but, you know, I tried to tap into different levels of his um, psychic, we'll call it. And finally, I looked at him in the eye and I said, you know, all four of us are going to die here today. But most importantly, your son will never see his dad again. You're a dead man. And with that, and I was being very blunt, I was trying to get some emotion out of him, I seen a teardrop in his eye. And then things started to change, and he started working with us. Uh, and again, late into the night, we finally reached Camp 3. It was scary. We had to do a lot of vertical repelling, uh, someone in front of him, someone behind him. And, and uh, but again, uh, I'm just grateful that I had the Sherpas there who were with me. Uh, and again, um, yeah, it's uh, it's about saving lives, uh, and you never know when it could be you. You hope it's not, but at the end of the day, again, it's not to the sum at all cost. Uh, you know, I'm a sponsored athlete for the most part, and someone once said to me, "Do you feel an added responsibility to get to the summit because you have sponsors on board?" And I say, no, I don't. But I do have an added responsibility to make those right decisions. And so it's about uh, if you have an opportunity to save a human life, you give up your summit attempt and you do what's necessary to take care of someone. Right, right. Well, I was relating to that story to my son because obviously it hit me hit me hard, you know, talking about uh, the piece where you talk about, you know, convincing this, the guy to get up because he had a son waiting at home. And, uh, you know, it was very touching. And my son asked, he said, well, why would somebody just give up? Why would they just sit down and not try to save themselves? And I said, well, you know, I imagine a lot of people are, you know, they have sponsorships, they've been planning on this this expedition for ages, and it's like the sole focus in their life. And they're thinking, I just need to go complete this. I don't care if my hands are cold. I don't care if I'm risking frostbite. I'm just going to keep going. And they find themselves in this situation. So can you talk about that a little bit? Um, you know, you talked about, you know, people asking if you're, you know, since you're sponsored, do you feel a, uh, you know, it's required that you get to the summit? And obviously you can't feel that way, but I imagine some people do. They set their hearts on completing this, this goal and it kind of, it kind of messes with their, their mental, uh, ability, their mental judgment, I guess. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I'll, uh, and I think most people would call that summit fever. Uh, you know, I, I'll always say my success again is sharing a story with you. Uh, but there's a lot of people who, you know, it, they, they feel they had to get to the summit at all costs for, you know, everyone has a different reason. Um, you know, there was a gentleman on K2 a couple of years ago who didn't make it to the summit, but he was sponsored. And eventually it came out and the wrong was corrected, but he told everyone he summited, because uh, he felt an obligation towards the sponsors. Um, other people, for example, you know, you've been dreaming about this particular mountain for years. You've been saving it up. You've remortgaged your house. 
and uh, you um, that's what it's all about. You need to get to that summit. So, uh, you know, everyone makes decisions and sometimes they're not the right ones. And for the most part in the mountains, yes, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, these things happen. But in most incidents, if I did a root analysis on the incident and accident and I work backwards, it's certainly human error. So, you know, my goal is to educate people that, um, you know, have the skill set to get out there and, and uh, be in the mountains. Don't get caught up in the idea. And that's one of the biggest problems today. And we'll just use Everest for that example. Uh, so many people, it's the biggest, it's the highest mountain in the world, Chumalumba, 29,035 feet. And you got some people, not all, but some people are trying to get on uh, Everest and they just don't have the skill set to be there. And so I always tell people, don't get caught up in the size or the mountain or that dream. Ask yourself in reality, do I have the skills to be there? And I always say to people, here's my scenario. There's five of us and four of us just died. That's reality in the mountains. Tell me what you're going to do to try to save your life, to try to get off the mountain. And if you're waiting for other people to do that for you, then you're probably going to die up there one day. And so it's all about having that skill set. Action cameras evolved quickly and are no longer just for recording your adventures. The new SIOI Iris 4G shares experiences as they happen. The connected camera is built specifically for action sports. It's rugged, wearable, and goes places you won't take your smartphone. The best part? Broadcast from the great outdoors with a simple touch. Your friends can watch live or come back for an instant replay. No downloads, no editing, now that's progress. Visit SIOEYE.com and share your next adventure live. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events.
Yeah, I imagine the the mental preparation is probably some of the best training you can get going into it. And I don't know if that really occurs when somebody's uh, training to do something like this or not, but it seems like it would be extremely important. Well, it is, you know, training. But again, people lose sight of that. And again, it can't be to the summit. And I was with, uh, you know, on Makalu when I, uh, 2014, I was the first Canadian to summit Makalu and hold that Canada flag. But we lost a team member, a very experienced um, gentleman who had died, uh, you know, weeks earlier. And again, it was like making those wrong decisions, pushing the envelope too much. Sometimes, you know, we push Mother Nature, Mother Nature pushes back, and we got to know uh, when today to draw the line. For example, it took me three times before I got to the summit of K2. Uh, people often ask me, you know, were you mad? Were you upset that you didn't make it? And I go, no, um, it just wasn't my time. And so I knew if I kept going back and honing my skills, be more intimate with the mountain, that maybe the identities would allow me to do something safe return. And in 2014, after again my third attempt, they did. And you know, when we talk about mental and uh, and the physical game, climbing is a combination of both. And so the way that I would put it in perspective, if you were a fireman, for example, and all the bells went off in the hall and you got dressed. You went out and answered that call. That height of awareness just went to the roof. You answer that call. You put out that fire, whatever the case is. You get back to the hall and you sit down and you go, man, I'm mentally exhausted. Try to hold that same, uh, you know, uh, point for two months. That same intensity is what I'm looking for. And so when I came off uh, K2, I had came down to Crampon Point at the base of the mountain you know, weave myself through the uh, ice pinnacles, through the glacier. And then just before base camp, I sat down on a rock and I looked up at the mountain and tears ran down my face. I remember saying, thank you. Thank you for releasing me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to stand on the summit. And so you're holding that same, that intensity for two months. Well, all of a sudden that just comes flowing out. And for me, it was the flow and happiness of tears. Yeah, yeah, I I I would say I can relate, but I can't. Yeah, you know, I can uh, I can only think I can imagine that. That's got to be a an amazing feeling. So let's talk about the the seven summits first. Um these are the seven highest summits uh in well, in the world. The highest on each uh, continent is how it goes. So which are these? Well, I'm probably going to mess them up a little bit here. So <laughs> bear with me, please. Um, you have the highest in North America being Denali. Some people know it as Mount McKinley, but it's uh, thankfully uh, by uh, President Obama. The name now has been uh, struck being Mount McKinley back to its original name, and that's how it's going to be used in history books. That's the highest in uh, North America, up in Alaska, 20,320 feet. Then we have uh, in South America, Aconcagua. Then we have... Uh, over in Russia, we have Mount Elbrus, we have, uh, which is not a, a mountain, it's more of a hike, but it's Kosciuszko up in Australia. Certainly, we have Everest. Okay, what am I missing here? Uh, Kilimanjaro. Sorry, thank you. In Africa, we have Kilimanjaro. And then Mount Vincent Massif. And then the beautiful in Antarctica, Vincent Massif. And... You know, so that's the highest mountain on each continent. And, you know, uh, Travis, just back the bus up a little bit. You had asked me um, about Denali uh, and what were my plans before and certainly after. 
you know, when we talk about the seven summits, I've never talked about, you know, uh, trying new things. I had no desire to do the seven summits. Uh, you know, after uh, I was successful on Denali and I was in the ghost and my friends asked me, any more big mountains? The answer was no. Then all of a sudden I seen myself with one other gentleman sneaking off to Russia. And we did um, Elbrus, uh, Mount Elbrus, and I was successful. We were successful. Then all of a sudden I was down in South America. And there was a gentleman on our team training for Everest. And we did uh, Akakangwa. And then I was invited to uh, attempt Everest. And so I remember being here in Canada with uh, coming back from Mount Robinson with a Dave Brumman that I mentioned earlier from Montana. And Dave uh, knows me uh, more than anyone in the climbing world at that time. He knows my ability. And um, I trust his opinion. And, you know, he's been a mentor and still is all these years. And he's a better climber than me. I remember sitting down on a log saying, you know, Dave, I've been invited to Everest, and I need to get your opinion. You know me more than anybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he said, Al, you're more than ready. And what Dave probably didn't know at the time, if he had said to me, you're not ready, I wouldn't have went. I go to Everest in 2007, and, um, you know, the, the gods were on my side. I summit Everest. And then when I came back, that's when, for me, the plan, the idea was hatched that, hey, I've got four out of the seven, maybe, I could do all seven. And again, uh, in 2008, I was in Africa, successful. And then I went to Antarctica uh, and I was successful there. And so, you know, I've done the seven summits and I was to the summit first time at the gate for each and every one of them. And that doesn't mean that I'm better than anybody else. It just means that I had better luck. But again, you know, I couldn't have done it without the direct involvement of the sponsors. Uh, for the seven summits, you know, that's a, that's a lot of money uh, to get, get there. Just Antarctica alone uh, is probably about a $50,000 American price tag. Yeah, that's some serious cash to to outlay and come up with just to just to get there, and you don't know that you're going to complete the summit. Well, there's you're right. There's no guarantee. Uh, you know, it's funny. A lot of times people think because you're going to go to the mountain that you're going to get to the summit. And you know, again, we talked about it. Climbing is a mental game, like it's a physical game for you, the individual, no matter who he or she is. Then it's certainly the team cohesiveness. I've seen that in other teams break down expeditions over and then of course it's mother nature and she decides ultimately who gets to the top and then also who gets to come home so i've often said that when you get to the summit everything in the universe for you at that moment in time has lined up but then when we get to the summit you got to remember that's only half the job half the people die coming down you know you spent so much time mentally and physically uh getting to that objective of being the summit that all of a sudden you get there and everything is just drained, and you really got to keep yourself in check and at least keep one-third of your energy in reserve to get back down. Make no mistakes. The slightest mistake ends up into a fatality, and that happens in the blink of an eye. Yeah, that's interesting. I imagine your judgment kind of goes to pot on the way back down because, like you said, you, you use so much of it and so much energy just to, to accomplish your goal. And then, you know, it's like that last run of the ski day. They say that's the that's the one you're going to get hurt on because you just kind of let your let your brain go, you know, and go on autopilot or so you think. And, and then all of a sudden your tragedy strikes. It does. And so that's why you, you can never you have to be dialed in 24 seven. You can never let your guard down whatsoever. Uh, I remember 2007 when I came through the Kumba Icefall uh, for the last time after being on the summit of Everest, 
I literally felt the mountain's weight drain from my shoulders. Uh, it just, it would be like if you had a heavy, heavy pack sack on and you took it off, that light feeling you would have. That's how I felt as I came through the Kumbai's fall for the last time. <laughs> so would you say this is an addiction or more of a desire to surpass your prior accomplishments? What drives you to continue to conquer these? The one thing I think of when I read these stories is thinking, okay, after that account and after experiencing that and feeling the weight come off my shoulders, I'm done. I'm done. You know, it's not, I don't want to be up here risking my life anymore. So what drives you on to the next one? Um, you know, I'm a very goal-orientated person. Uh, and with that said, you know, I like to push myself uh, to the, I always say, to the edge of the abyss and take a peek over and then humbly walk back. Um you know, it's about, for me, uh, and it's, it's ironic because I talk about death sometimes, and people would say, you know, are you, you fixated on death? And I go, the closer I am to death, the more I'm enjoying and celebrate life. And it really puts it in perspective that, for me, I just want to get out there, and I want to wring out every bit of uh, joy and passion in, in life that I can. And I'm just fortunate that mountains, uh, what gives me the joy and the passion, the opportunity to travel... Uh, and be there, but you know it's something different for everybody else. You know, for me, mountains are made of rock, ice, and snow. Uh, for you, the individual, again, no matter who he or she is, it's something different. But I encourage you to go out and find and climb your mountain, whatever it is, and you know, get the proper training. But you know, that exit sign that you see, that's really a sign saying, "Get outside and go play." Yeah, yeah, well said. You had mentioned a quote earlier on in our discussion that you like to say often. What was that? That struck me, but I don't remember what you had actually said. You know, I always say he or she who is willing to bow down to the art of suffering the most has the best opportunity for success. You know, and I'll just put it in the framework of the mountains, but it could be different for different people. Um, but, you know, take away the mountains for one second just to live in that environment on a daily basis, uh, you know, that little tent, that becomes your home, that sleeping bag, uh, of course, that's your warmth. So, so, you know, you really, when I say bowing down to the art of suffering, you know, you need to cut that umbilical cord to all the comforts of down here, what I call uh, on the on earth, so to speak. Uh, you know, that uh, nice warm, uh, you know, bed you're in, the, uh, the out, flicking the light switch, going to the washroom, all these things that we take for granted are stripped away. And if you could, I often call it, or I've been quoted as saying, uh, you know, it's flipping the switch. So what uh, helps to me and my success in the mountains, I flip the switch very early on. I strip away all the ideas and thoughts of comfort. And I really bow down uh, again to the art of suffering that, you know, getting up at two o'clock in the morning and the wind is just whipping at your face um, and, uh, you know, getting out there and pushing in the root. Uh, having to go to the potty, we'll say, and doing number two at three or four in the morning and pulling your pants down and, you know, your legs become like icicles. And so all <laughs> these things, um, that's part of bound down to the of suffering. And, you know, then it's the, the mountain itself. So I've seen people uh, at base camp after a while uh, just quit, sell their or give their big boots, climbing Malay boots, for example, to a Sherpa, and said, hey, I'm out of here. And I go, well, what do you mean you're out of here, Al? I'm never coming back to the mountains. And, you know, but so it's really about in any sport uh, that you want to get involved in, 
you know, it's about really how bad or how much do I really want to participate. And again, it's stripping away all the layers of comfort and really um, putting it out there. And of course, that's when you find out who you are the most anyway. I feel it is. Um, it's by stripping away all those layers of comfortability and then that really person of who's inside of you, that person rises to the top and uh, it's a pretty cool experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why it struck a chord because you know I've experienced that on an albeit much minor, uh, much more minor level than being at the top of Everest. But you know, going out snow cave camping overnight in the winter or something, you know, people will ask, "Why in the world would you do that? Isn't it cold? Aren't you suffering?" Well, you are, but like you say, if you give yourself in, you know, to the to the mountain or give yourself into the weather, you're not suffering as much as you would as if you were fighting it and thinking the entire time, you know, this is terrible, this sucks. Um, so once you do, that does register and you do flip that switch, all of a sudden you can have an enjoyable time out there if you just let it go and work with the environment. And it allows you to, like you said again, realize who you are and what you have within you, which you probably may not have realized in the beginning walking into it. It's a, it's a major learning lesson for anybody that wants to get out and do this kind of stuff, just pushing those boundaries. You're absolutely right. And sometimes, uh, you know, it brings out, um, say, the not-so-nice side of us, um, you know, uh, or the people around us. You know, stress um, brings out different uh, avenues. And so sometimes... We, uh, it's better to be silent when you're with a group of people when you're feeling a little stressed, but it certainly really makes you, uh, it gives you time to think about who you are when you're in that environment. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. As I'm reading Mike Fenner's book, Crossing Denali, um, as we alluded to earlier, he, there was a situation where he basically kind of got into a spat with another person who he at the time didn't think was, uh, pulling their own weight. And, you know, and he was really kicking himself for even allowing him to get to that point because, you know, like you said, you're, you're up here, you're all working hard, you're, you're overcoming these mental challenges and to, to be able to let that spill over into an argument and, you know, God forbid an altercation up there is so energy and morale sapping that you really have to be on your game, I imagine, in any one of those situations. Uh, you're absolutely right. Of course, I'm a work in progress myself. Uh, I can take my own advice. But, you know, you're right. You know, uh, we all have different uh, breaking points, and that's why we need to uh, step forward to help someone when we can, but also uh, be willing to step back and just let people uh, get through their day, but be willing to lend that hand because today I may be having a bad day, uh, and maybe it'll be you tomorrow. So it's really about that team spirit about working together. And again, at times, um, the moment of silence is the best voice you have. Yeah, right. So of the seven summits, I have to ask, which would you consider your favorite? You know, um, each one presents its own inherent risk and dangers. Each one has the beauty of its own. Um you know, uh, in 2007, I arrived on the summit of Everest. I, for the first 10 or 15 minutes, I was all alone. As far as the naked eye could see into Tibet and China, I could see. As far as the naked eye could see into um, Nepal and India, I could see as well. And someone said, you know, wasn't that uh, emotional for you? And I go, if you could have taken away my glasses, you would have seen frozen teardrops. Um, yeah, so which mountain is uh, what I favor to go back to? 
you know, again, they, they're all uh, beauty in their own way. I, I think if I had to pick one out of everything I've done, and we're going past the seven summits, I think uh, I would want to go back to K2 and give that another try. But, you know, in 2011, I was climbing Shisha Pangba in Tibet, and I could look over and I could see Everest and Lhotse and Nupsi uh, and Choyu. And then a week later, because I did a double header, I was on Choyu looking out of my tent and I could see the mountain at the tip of Shishapangra where I stood a week before. And now a week or four days later, I'm on the summit of Choyu and I can see Everest where I stood twice right there and so again everyone has its own beauty and i'm just very grateful very humbled that uh, i'm out doing what i'm doing you know if there's one word uh, that i think it's really important that we all need to live by uh, and that's a word called passion live life with passion yeah yeah if you don't do that you're probably wasting life i would agree with that for sure you know and now of course jumping ahead uh, i'm involved in the big 14 challenge and mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to move on to that. So the Big 14 Challenge, that's the 14 highest mountains in the world above 8,000 meters. You have seven of those in Nepal. You have two in uh, Tibet. One can be accessed from either Nepal or Tibet, being Choyu. And certainly then you have five in Pakistan. And uh, one person in all North America has done all uh, 14 uh, visitors of the United States. But we don't have any Canadian. And so the big 14 challenges for me is to be the first Canadian to do all 14 peaks. Now, if someone were to do it and before I would, I'd be the first one to shake their hand. But my record speaks for itself. And that's what I'm engaged in. And so, again, if uh, anybody out there, uh, be a potential sponsors or individuals who want to try to support this endeavor, uh, you know, go to uh, www.alhancock.com. You could see uh, sponsorship opportunities or certainly GoFundMe. And again, to those people who reach out to try to help, I say thank you so much. Much appreciated. Yeah, yeah, I definitely wanted to people uh, point people to your GoFundMe page because there's raising the money to to get out and do these things and accomplish. It's got to be so difficult. I mean, you spend time training and and planning, but there's so much time spent just doing the fundraising to get up there in the first place. And it's got to be extremely difficult and laborious, to be honest. It's a, it's a full-time job. Uh, certainly, you need to be uh, very, very resilient. You will get far more no's than you'll ever get a maybe. You'll get far more maybes than you'll ever get a yes. Um, I get out of bed every morning, and I do not uh, think about or... Uh, you know, yesterday's disappointments, I jump out of bed every day uh, to seize and create new opportunities. And I always say today that phone call can ring and change the dynamics of everything. But, you know, Travis, before we move any further, you know, when we talk about my success on the mountains, you know, I'll always say what a waste of success if you can't use that channel, motivate others to believe in themselves. You know, so for me to be able to go to schools, and talk to the kids and really try to uh, motivate, to inspire them to live their dreams. Uh, that's what it's all about for me. Um, someone once said to me, you know, what would you like for your legacy to be as someone who's climbed Everest twice, K2, et cetera, et cetera? And I said, it's quite simple that one day, one of these young kids grow up to be a ad young adult and they go, you know, I can't remember his name, but I remember this guy who climbed Everest, K2, et cetera, and I remember what he had to say. 
and it made a difference to me. That's my legacy. They don't remember my name, but they remember the message. <laughs> yeah, that's great. House of Motorrad is Colorado's original adventure motorcycle rental company. From their top-of-the-line fleet of rental motorcycles bike BMW, KTM, Triumph, and Yamaha to their expert service shop, they are your one-stop shop for all of your motorcycle needs. Servicing all makes and models from tire changes to engine rebuilds, House of Motorrad will take care of you and get you on the road. Visit www.houseofmotorrad.com to check out their selection of parts and accessories or call them at 720-466-0047. At House of Motorrad, your adventure awaits you. Hey folks, be sure to swing by 180tac.com to check out the 180 stove and the 180 flame camp stoves. These lightweight, compact, multi-fuel stoves are made in the USA and are designed to be fail-proof on your adventure. These stoves offer the flexibility to cook your meal using twigs and sticks found around you or various other fuels like gel fuel, alcohol, charcoal, or even use them as a windbreak and stable cooking surface for remote bottle gas stoves. The ingenious locking tab and slot design ensures your stove is very solid and stable without the use of hinges, rivets, or fasteners that can fail you in the field. Visit 180tack.com to find your next camp stove. Speaking to kids, um, do do you think they get it? I don't know what kind of age groups you talk to, but do you think they get the magnitude of what it is you've accomplished and what you're speaking about? You know, I think probably not the magnitude, but they get the message. And it's really about believing in yourself. You know, for example, I was born, like you talked about earlier, I was born and raised on an island in the Atlantic Ocean called Newfoundland. I lived way up north in Alberta for many, many years, but yet I've been on the highest mountain on every continent, and I'm just a guy next door. And if I, being Al Hancock, talking to third person, can achieve these things by believing in himself, you too can achieve anything you want. And again, it's about stepping outside your comfort zone. It's about getting that training, and it's about never giving up, uh, never stop believing in what you want. Uh, and so I really, really believe that the kids really do get the message that, uh, you know, it takes that encouragement. So, again, for me, what a waste of success if I can't use that to motivate, uh, you know, all kids at all ages that, uh, you know, for me, again, climbing uh, is not just, for example, a male sport. Uh, there's a lot of great, great female climbers out there. And so it's a people sport. But that goes for anything we want to do in life. You know, basically get out there and, and enjoy life, but uh, never stop living in yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think to get the message across to, to kids early on that we're all – you know, we all start out in life with the same bare feet and birthday suit, you know, and that it's, it's completely up to you. If you want to do something big, then, then 
you just need the drive to go do it and do it. You know, there's nothing holding you back uh, in the grand scheme of things to to do so. And be careful of the dream crushers because they'll crush your dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, right. if you're around people and we'll, we'll just say if somebody wants to take, I don't know, dance lessons and your friends are saying, why are you always going there? You're never with us anymore. And all of a sudden you stop doing that uh, because you're bound down to the, uh, you know, your friends. And I say, you know what? Find new friends, but never stop leaving your dreams. Chase them and never let them go. You know, that's the rainbow of life are your dreams. Oh, yeah. Well, it goes back to your original statement earlier on that, you know, if you start out one of these things and you have somebody back out, don't follow them, you know, have the courage to continue on without them and big things can happen, obviously. And you never know, you know, it's about these doors open up, have that courage, that tenacity, uh, that finesse to walk through those doors. You know, you may try something new and be very good at it, but it's just not for you. You may try something and not receive or achieve the results that you wanted to, but you started to like it a lot, which happened to me. And again, you never know uh, where it could take you. Again, we're sitting here today and we're talking about myself as a mountaineer, and it all started by trying something new. It started by me not reaching my objective. And so now today, you know, I've made history several times in the Himalayas. Uh, and wow, it's been a great ride. If someone were to say to me, uh, and God willing, it don't, you know, I'm sorry, Mr. Hancock, but you will never climb again. Uh, my response would be, boy, I sure had fun. <laughs> well, yeah, I think your resume speaks to that. <laughs> At least you've got a few uh, boxes checked there. <laughs> to worry about and I say my best work is yet to come. Uh, you know, someone said to me, you know, what do you think you're going to do once you finish the seven summits? And I go, well, I'd like to pull a sled for about 50 to 70 days and try to get to the North Pole. Then I'd like to try to do it to the South Pole. So that's wow. So uh, what I try to tell people is that, you know, you have these goals, you have these dreams, and you need to move forward and, and make those things happen. And then when you get there, then ask yourself one word, and it's in capital letters, next. What's next for me, you, the individual? And so never rest on what you did yesterday. Always be planning, be shooting for the stars, and uh, live a good life. Uh, you know, walk with humility and grace. Um, you know, it's always more important to put more back in the pool of life than you're willing to take. But again, uh, you know, get out there and live your dreams. And uh, if, you, if possible, take a few people along the way with you. Yeah, right. Before we get too far away from Annapurna, um, I do want to speak about some some really neat things that happened to you up on these. But I did also want to take a minute and commend you on staying back um, after the earthquakes that had de- devastated that area. It would be so easy after going through what you went through just to board a plane and and get the hell out of Dodge and get back into the comfort of your your home environs. But you you guys stayed back and and helped. Uh, helped treat that area and, and uh, it gives some aid to the area. So I wanted to uh, basically give you give you kudos for doing that. Uh, you know, I was just uh, grateful to have that opportunity. Um, you know, we had came off the Annapurna uh, after the rescue and so forth, and we were at base camp. Uh, and the next day, you know, it was just so ironically that everyone had came off the day before. But the next day, I was in my tent and it, the ground started to shake uh, like I've never felt before. And I've been in earthquakes in the past, but this was uh, 
pretty intense and everybody was running and uh, to set it up a little bit you know Annapurna is like in the, uh, like a horseshoe and so on one side would be Annapurna across this little area there's a bunch of the smaller mountains and in the middle of the horseshoe it's a couple thousand foot high uh, rock wall and capped by a uh, nice cap and so our base camp is right in uh, close to that wall and so when that the uh, Earthquake happened a 7.9, I believe, or 7.8 that devastated Nepal. Uh, you know, people were running and uh, for their lives, thinking that all this rock was going to fall down. And then the tremors went on for days after. So it was a pretty intense moment. Uh, a week later, we were uh, picked up uh, by a helicopter and taken back to Kathmandu. And as we were flying low, uh, heading back to Kathmandu, the destruction uh, was uh, unimaginable uh, to be there. And, you know, then once I was back in Kathmandu, I was with uh, some friends, and we were bringing uh, aid uh, to a group in the what we call the Dokola region. And all of a sudden, uh, I remember on the front of the bus, and that's where we had a big bus loaded down with, with uh, supplies. I seen, which was a really calm, quiet day. All of a sudden, the trees started to sway. Uh, a close friend of mine, Chris Burke, yells out. You know, uh, avalanche, avalanche, and a whole mudslide came down from the bus, and the bus started rocking, and it was right at the edge of a cliff. And so we bail off the bus, and then the roads start opening up. And then another one happened on the back of the bus, and we spent hours having to dig out uh, one part of the uh, road that was blocked off to get the bus turned around. And there was a lot of tremors, and it was pretty scary. And I remember even when we got off the bus and the road was opening up, uh, across the valley, uh, massive slides were coming down, peeling the trees, and you can hear the screams uh, of people dying. And there was nothing you could do. Uh, it, it, just, it was happening all around us. And so we got the bus turned around. We went back out to the next village. And everybody was in the cornfield, and they were crying. And as they were crying, more tremors uh, of a quite the magnitude, and all the homes uh, were just collapsing all around us in dominoes. And, you know, to see a people with next to nothing, and now they've lost everything. It was uh, pretty sad, pretty wrenching. Uh, so all the aid we had on that bus, we had gave it to that, that particular little community. And then uh, a week later, I was with a different aid group. Uh, we had uh, 13 trucks, 32 tons, I believe, of uh, aid, be it uh, doll, salt, tarps, etc. And we went back deep into the Dokla region uh, to that area that uh, we heard the screams coming from. And again, to see that, uh, it was like you were into a war zone. Um, it was just a heartfelt, and the death and destruction was was all around you and uh, to go in there with 32 tons and that were donated by people from around the world but to be on the ground level and to give that uh, to the people who need it uh, it was quite gratifying and you know one thing that uh, we gave them I think was one word and that was called hope hope of a better tomorrow Wow. Well, that's amazing. I mean, that's uh, what you just described there is enough adventure for many people for a lifetime, you know, and this this all following have to ever having giving your yourself off of the mountain at the same time. So, I mean, good for you guys for for sticking that out and, and going through that to help those people because there was a, a lot of devastation down there for sure. 
Uh, and, and it's still today, you know, uh, we need to continually try to help out uh, the Nepali people. Uh, certainly there's a lot of bureaucratic uh, red tape to go through. But again, um, you know, people often said to me, how do I know that the aid is getting to uh, where it needs to be? And yes, there's always going to be a misappropriate of certain amount of funds. That's, uh, we don't like to hear it, but that's a reality. But I can also tell you that the reality is, as well is that I've been on the ground level, like I just said, and I, along with my colleagues, handed over 32 tons. And again, we made a difference to 1,100 families. And so uh, that aid is making a difference. So, you know, bravo to the people around the world who reached out with uh, donations to try to make a difference. Because, again, your donations did make a difference. It gave people hope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we have just about blown through an hour, wow. uh, believe it or not. Um, and I could easily go on for a couple more. But I don't want to leave off on the uh, with the element of tragedy in our minds. So how about... Uh, some great experiences, a story of just an amazing uh, experience or event from being on one of these expeditions. Wow. Uh, you know, the great stories is that uh, you, um, you get to come home and you get to share those stories with uh, other individuals. Uh, you know, the mountains are the goal and the objective. Everything in between is the journey. So for me to uh, go back uh, to these uh, areas of uh, and enjoy the people, the culture, the changing of the landscape. Uh, you know, uh, the earthquake in Nepal was a tragedy, but it's also not a tragedy when you have an opportunity to help people and you see the smiles and the gratitude. And so that's a positive thing. And so when we talk about helping people, you know, let's uh, every day when we get out of bed, we had that opportunity to make change, uh, be it a simple gesture of hello to the person we're walking by. It's free to say hi um, to holding open up a door. It doesn't matter uh, who it is coming behind you. Uh, open up the door and let that person through. So every day we have an opportunity to be better as human beings, to make a difference in people's lives. And I think that's the, the, the story right there for me is about, uh, you know, walking with humility and continuing to learn uh, and try to make a difference in people's lives. Well, very well put. So before we, we head out, um, how far along the, the 14 summits or the big 14 um, goal are you at this point? Uh, well, I've, uh, out of the 14, I've been on the summit of six, uh, one twice, of course, being the summit of Everest. Uh, but I've been on five that I didn't get to the summit. When we talk about being resilient and continually striving uh, to make that 14 happen, you know, Three times before I got to the summit K2. So that's two, no summit. Last year, Annapurna, no summit. Broad Peak last year, uh, no summit. That was my second attempt in Broad Peak. And now I'm heading back in four short weeks back into Nepal. That's where I keep all my climbing gear. I'll sort things out, dial things in. And then uh, the beginning of June, I'll be back in Pakistan um, to go back for my third attempt on Broad Peak, which is the 12th highest in the world. And so I look forward to the uh, the challenges that lay ahead, and it's going to be exciting times. <laughs> well, that's great. I can't wait to uh, to follow along and and see where these adventures take you, and uh, and see your your journals and your photos that come out of them for sure. 
So he's Al Hancock, H-A-N-C-O-C-K. Check him out on alhancock.com. You can also find him on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Go back and read his journals. Check out his photos. And uh, Al, you do a great job of journaling and telling the story about being up there. And it's, it's so easy to get lost into your to your to your writing and to your photos of these so i appreciate you taking the time and putting that stuff out there and uh, i'm so glad we had the opportunity to have you on the show well thank you so much travis and you know if there's one thing i want to leave uh, yourself certainly all your listeners with and i talked about it before and i'm going to hit it uh one more time before we leave you know for me for al hancock mountains are made of rock ice and snow but for you the individual no matter who he or she is you know, I ask you this, I, I challenge you, what is your mountain? Go out and seek it, whatever it may be, get the right training. But again, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. Get dressed, but go out and play. Uh, life is great and uh, follow your heart, follow your dreams. Find your passion in life. Well said. Well, to all of our listeners, uh, take a cue from Al and get out there and try something new. Until the next episode. We'll see you later. Thanks, Al. You're very welcome, and thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye.